the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population, typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. Ten th- mention that 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their, their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and, and ministry abilities, but then, too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that, you know, as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you've led, think about um, the shortness of the time that you have left, and questions with regard to the the significance of your life, and ultimately being heaven-bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. And uh, we appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor of the Division of Geriatric Medicine and uh, Care Pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Burning, uh, Birmingham. We have, you mean you're, you're we, have, new- uh, we have two centers for aging here in Alabama, one affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a center for mental health and aging at the, at the University of Alabama. So UAB is actually a separate university with a, you know, very... Uh, and with an outstanding uh, department of uh, division of geriatric medicine, so I have a joint appointment. This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture. I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a, a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that He's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we we haven't kept, you know, captured that yet. And so what we want to do is is think about ministry from seniors first, and then during that final season of life, ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it um, if you make it to 65 on average, and these are just general averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another, typically you'll live another 19 years. And four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, if you're a man, you, on average, you live um, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, you know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home, and in the opening introduction, he, he writes, All my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. 
I wish they had because I'm an old man now and believe it. it believe me, it's not easy. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say we need you. And uh, and then there are very specific things over the 12 to 15 years that we've been doing research with congregations that can form the basis of a ministry. Um, but the, the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. Um, it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was was on active duty and uh, I was uh, assigned to Seventh Medical Command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm, and my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral, and when I flew back to 7th Medical Command, they had a memorial service for my father. And I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform um, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging Postdoctoral Fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted. Uh, and then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department, and I got that. And then as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out. And uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed. And I said, well, I'm not I'm not going, <laughs> and uh, I want to go to Michigan and... and uh, and they, you know, basically said, we're a young army and, and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed or you put your career in jeopardy. So somebody said I should go talk to my boss. And uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him. And uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm. And uh, when I went in to see him, he mirrored the, the ideas of the, you know, psychiatrist, my colleagues. And then he said, what are you going to do there? And I said, I'm going to, you know, thank you for coming to my father's memorial service. And I told him what I just shared with your listeners, uh, that, you know, I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving. And his whole countenance changed. And he said, I just got a call from Iowa from my family priest. And he said, your mother is leaving the gas on the stove. What do you want to do? And you see, here you have uh, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country nationwide, particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance. And he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service and that he'd been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenging, uh, significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And... Um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, he said, tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan. And the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns. And, and off I went for a wonderful postdoc in Michigan, which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory. So that's a quick intro into how I got into this. You know, the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on health care issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs of uh, the the grain segment of American population, yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to uh, meeting the spiritual needs. And we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Michael Parker is with us tonight, as you hear, a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army, serving now as associate professor at the School of Social Work 
and Mental Health and Aging, the University of Alabama, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. When we come back, how do you uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking about the grain of America tonight, 80 million of us in that generation called the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and as some 10,000 of us every single day reaches retirement age, it begs the question, how do we go about focusing on ministering to this unique and growing segment of the population, not only in terms of, of harnessing the talent, skills, and abilities that they have uh, as con- active contributors to the church and ministry in the body of Christ, but then, too, what about ministering to their needs? There's lots of focus these days, of course, about health care and, and uh, care services for the elderly and the aging. As much as we talk about the physical needs, though, what about this aspect of meeting their unique spiritual needs. We're talking about that in this segment of the program with us, Dr. Michael Parker, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. Let's talk about this. You know, every church uh, pretty much anywhere in America has a youth ministry or a young singles group. Are we going to see the day, Dr. Parker, when many churches will also have an older adults ministry? Yes, in fact, uh, a lot of people kind of age out of youth ministry into senior ministry uh, from our experience. Uh, but the, the problem is that we're not addressing it systemically in our, in our seminaries and we're not preparing people for, that, for the fact that people are living so long. And so that's kind of an area we've been working on. And if, if you look at something even um, as challenging as a disaster like Katrina or the recent F5 tornadoes that we had come through Tuscaloosa, seniors... Um, um, are hit more severely because of that. Uh, roughly 70% of the casualties from Katrina, 60 to 70% were seniors, and 80% of those dear people belong to congregations. And so one of the responsibilities the church has, I believe deacons and elders, is to make sure that we have kind of a, a safety net to older people prepare for the kind of disasters that might be characteristic of the geography where you are. Um, I lived in Monterey for a while, and I know some of the dangers you face out there. And really, I think you know, our deacons really need to take responsibility for making sure that our seniors are safe You know, in the, in the event of a disaster. Uh, here in Tuscaloosa, where the F5 tornadoes hit, in one uh, church alone, we had four deaths um, related to the tornadoes, and they weren't directly related, they were indirectly related in the sense that they were affected by the consequences and the dislocation of the tornado, and they didn't adjust well. So that's just one small area that I think churches can step up, um, helping, the, you, you were talking about some of the statistics, you know, some would argue that one in two over 80 will suffer from dementia, and roughly two-thirds of those will be Alzheimer's disease. And we're diagnosing that um, awful disease earlier and earlier now. What does someone do with that knowledge that, you know, they're basically going to lose their memory? And for a Christian, it's the loss of memory of God, their memories of God, their memories of Scripture. What assurances can we give them? And so the co-author on our book, uh, Jim Houston, who, by the way, was mentored by C.S. Lewis at Oxford, wonderful scholar, uh, the most joyful Christian at 88 that I know, and brilliant, has 
you know, helped me write a chapter on kind of a, a theology of dementia. And he would say that we need to reassure anyone who's been diagnosed, and I'm cutting to the basic idea, is that they're remembered of God and they can trust Him. And that's just one nuance, again, of how we might develop some ministry. Do we also need to see, you made reference to the issue of seminaries and schools that are preparing pastors and those for full-time ministry. Do we need to see the beginnings of development, Dr. Parker, of unique ministries? Because I think of the needs, as you say, of whether you're ministering to people who are Alzheimer's patients or their loved ones, uh, those that are just, even as the longevity tables do what they do, and we're seeing people living longer and longer. I mean, the growing number of centarians, for example, right. in America is, is significant. The needs that they have is not just like treating the older end of the demographic within our congregation. Well, pastor's in his 60s. Surely he can help meet the needs and, and pray for and care for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. That may not be necessarily the case, especially as we see folks that are 90 and centarians. Absolutely. And, of course, these people are not able to travel. Um, they have mobility issues often and some frailness. And the church can be a part of helping people age successfully, by the way, to look at it on the, from a positive point of view. We can help people avoid disease and disability. We can help them kind of maximize their cognitive and physical fitness. We can help them be more actively engaged in ministry and in life. I think all our congregations can do a better job of asking our senior saints to pray for ministry and to engage in Holy Spirit-led ministry in the latter stages of life. Uh, you look at examples like Dr. Houston and Dr. Graham, who are, um, who their notion of retirement is not age-graded. You know, we we live in a very age-graded. Uh, society and our seminaries are not immune from that, nor are our churches. We think we we go to school, we go to work, and then we retire. But the truth is, we if we're lifelong learners, we go to school our entire lives. Uh, we really work our entire lives, and and you know so the these are structures that are really lifelong. So we we go to school, we work, and we. Um, um, need to take respites along the way. So those concepts really don't work, and the church needs to challenge, you know, to provide kind of a countercultural perspective on the value of life in the final stages and be involved in helping develop uh, caregiver support programs, uh, helping churches partner that are too small to manage these programs, help us, uh, you know, do some late life planning, end of life, aging in place initiatives, uh, helping people prepare for um, uh, caregiving. And now we're talking about, you know, middle stage adults who are worried about their aging parents and then challenging the, the elderly to engage with their young adult children about their, their long-term care plans. The long-term care industry in this country is broken and it's in trouble. And, you know, when you look at the statistics that suggest we have more people over the age of 65 than we have 18 and younger, those uh, demographics are not going to change. And so it's kind of the elephant on the table. And we, we have to help the church embrace it. And the good news that these senior saints are around, these elders are long, around longer and can help us. So, you know, involving them in uh, small group life so that they're nurturing and loving younger people, um, uh, witnessing to the power of Christ in their lives, uh, and maybe 
setting up kind of a life review ministry so that you're capturing these stories of these wonderful senior saints and putting it to film. And there's a lot of work being done in that area. And we know from uh, our research that when someone completes a life review in the right way, it's an antidepressant. And so when somebody listens to your story and your story of faith, it really is uh, encouraging to that person and affirming. And uh, there are all kinds of lessons there that can be learned and applied by younger generations. Developing a vision for the aging church, renewing ministry for and by seniors. New book co-authored by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Dr. Michael Parker. The new book, by the way, published by University Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And Dr. Parker, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a topic that we've discussed before. Um, some, I think, troubling statistics that ought to catch the attention of all of us within the organized church in America. And that is surveys. They've been done by a variety of groups. Probably the most recent, most reliable, in my opinion, is that done by uh, George Barna and his organization that finds that an alarming percentage of young people who um, grow up in church, attending Sunday school, they've been baptized there, they've uh, been active in children's church all through their young adult years, and then they reach their later teens, high school, largely collegiate level, and it seems that once they graduate from high school and move into college, they move into the dorms and out of the pews. And the question is why? What's going on in the lives of young people today? where they feel perhaps that the church is not adequately addressing their needs. Well, a new book has been written that helps to address this very issue that takes a look at some key strategies that's not necessarily, you know, fancy entertainment programs, things of that sort, but rather an attempt to sort of um, take a look at the church and most specifically how we can do a better job at not only keeping young people in the church, but allowing church and most importantly Christianity at the core to be relevant in their lives. Joining me now is one of the co-authors of a new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, in addition to being co-author, is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Fuller Youth Institute. He is, by the way, a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and has also served as a ministry director with Youth for Christ and also with YWAM. And Jake, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Hey, thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. When we uh, talk about solutions, of course, it, it helps to get a bit of a handle on ascertaining what the problem is. Uh, you know, everything from vacation Bible school, children's choir, youth church, all of this. Um, youth have always been a important component within the church, and I've also seen studies to suggest that uh, there's a greater likelihood of people continuing um, in their faith for the entire length of their life, um, the younger that they make that decision or commitment to Christ. So we know that youth outreach and ministry is critically important, and yet in recent years there has been this trend, this trend of young people reaching a certain age and saying, okay, I'm no longer compelled to go by my parents, I no longer feel compelled, and they're done. Why? 
Yeah, exactly, Craig. In many ways, as you said, it's it's oftentimes, unfortunately, into the college dorm and out of the pews. And as you cited George Barna, the research from their organization often points to the fact that 40, 50 percent of those young people who grow up in the church end up drifting from God and the faith after they graduate from high school. Um, there's a lot of other negative statistics we could look at in a, regarding the church and where the church is at. Pew Research had released uh, some results recently where 78% of the U.S. adult population used to identify as Christian. Now that's 71%. We could look at other negative statistics like uh, 18 to 29-year-olds make up 20% of the U.S. population, but they actually make up only 10% of U.S. churchgoers. Uh, so as you indicated, lots of bad news. There's, there's a lot that we could point to of what's not working. But that's where we're so excited about this new research in the book, Growing Young, because we decided, what if we looked past the bad news? What if we looked beyond the problems and the struggles? And what if we actually studied churches that are thriving in their ministry to teenagers and young adults? And in doing so, um, and you've looked at churches, of course, uh, across the country, across denominational lines. You've looked at uh, churches that were mixed, churches that were uh, predominantly minority, churches that were predominantly white. Any trends that you see, any commonality with those churches that seem to be doing the quote-unquote better job at keeping or retaining young people? Yeah, very much. And before I mention a couple of those, one of the things I, I do want to mention were some of our surprises of what we thought we might find as a commonality that we, in fact, didn't find. So as we began the study, we wondered if we might find that churches that are large would be more effective with millennials, with teenagers and young adults, or maybe it's churches that have a big budget, or it's churches that have been recently planted, or it's churches that have just this off-the-charts cool quotient, or uh, they, you know, their worship is like a rock concert, or they've got a laser light show and fog machines, or a hip, cool young pastor. And we can with confidence say from the churches that we've studied, uh, it was not about any of those single things that led to effectiveness with young people. Interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this, and I mentioned this in my introductory remarks that we used to do historically a good job as the church in providing uh, places for young people. But I wonder if there's a degree to which maybe that has backfired on us. And I, I pose that question because um, one of the things certainly, and if we compare, for example, young people that get involved in gangs, yeah. uh, typically what do we see? We see young people coming from broken homes, uh, single parent families divorced families. We see young people who largely will get involved in gangs because there's not only a sense of community there and a sense of power, but a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling like you're, in a, in a way, in a surrogate family. And I wonder if we have come to perhaps, in this day and age, made a mistake by putting so much emphasis on in a sense, isolating young people because it's children's church, it's youth ministry, it's young people's outreach, that somehow we want them separate and apart from what the rest of the adults do, that in a sense, have we, rather than embracing them so that they get a sense of being in, in that greater community, rather isolated them? Yeah, Craig, I think you're very much on to something that in many ways lines up with our research. Uh. So what, what we've landed on, uh, as kind of in a nutshell, our study, we've landed on six core commitments 
that we think are essential for the whole church. And I say whole church because not just the children's church, not just the youth ministry, not just an independent young adult ministry. These are six core commitments that are vital for the whole church culture to buy into. And uh, one of those six, in fact, is something very close to what you mentioned. We've come to call it that these churches prioritize young people and their families everywhere. So they're prioritized in every area of the church. And while that sounds uh, intuitive in some ways, or even obvious, what church would say we don't prioritize a younger generation? We found that there's often a strong difference between uh, the rhetoric or the language churches use, perhaps their intentions to prioritize young people, and uh, what it actually looks like to prioritize young people well in practice. Well, and I guess there's also a difference between prioritizing versus ghettoizing. Very much, and unfortunately, what we've often done, and I want to emphasize that, that this has been done out of the best of intentions uh, in so many of our churches. So it's not been done out of neglect. It's not been done out of ill will. It's out of a desire that we want to reach and engage children, teenagers, young adults well. But as you say, we've often segmented them off in their own corner of the church. If, if a church has a large enough budget, perhaps we've built them their own youth room. We've hired them their own staff member as a youth pastor. The problem is that many teenagers, they might go through an average year of their ministry calendar and hardly ever interact with adults who are outside of their age range. Well, the other issue, too, is, and I always thought this, when uh, that part of the service, typically very early on, came and the children were, quote-unquote, dismissed to head off to their own church. And I thought, I wonder how many of them um, quietly wondered to themselves as they're sitting in youth service, what's going on back in the adult service that the adults don't want them to hear? Uh, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always that sense that, well, you're trying to block me from something or, or, or leave me out. And, uh, you know, children see enough of that when parents say, well, you can only go to certain types of movies, you have to be embedded a certain time. And we understand that part of this is good parenting, but part of it, I think, lends, lends itself to that sense of, of being um, not only isolated, but almost, and, and again, I have to concur with you at, at this level, Jake, it's not done with malintent, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that some young people, as a result, may feel as if they're being treated like they're second-class citizens. Yeah, and if I can share an example from one church that stood out in this area in our study, it's it's First Baptist Southgate. They're located in South Los Angeles, and uh, they're a predominantly Latino congregation. Uh, originally, the church was predominantly Spanish-speaking. And what happened in this congregation is the parents, the grandparents, had, had moved to the United States, spoke exclusively Spanish. Well, as they had children, as they had grandchildren, uh, those children and grandchildren were growing up in an English-speaking environment in Los Angeles and spoke almost exclusively English. So as they got a bit older and they were looking at their worship service, the church was faced with this decision of, <laughs> we can keep our worship service in Spanish so that the grandparents, the parents, understand what's happening, and we could start a separate English ministry somewhere else or on the side or in another part of the building uh, in order to minister to the children, the grandchildren in the church. But as they reflected on that, they just realized that wasn't who God had called them to be as a congregation. 
And they reflected, if we were to do that, it's only going to drive a wedge between generations. Uh, And so, you know, bless them, the adults, the parents, the grandparents in the church said, even though this is going to cost us something and something very important to us of our language, we are willing to go about the process of integrating young people into our service, of letting English be a portion of each of those services. So we saw situations when we visited this church where you had... Uh, a grandchild and a grandparent, and the grandparent did not understand parts of the service that were being given in English, but was willing uh, to go there and was willing to do that because of his deep love for his grandson. And the church as a whole embraced the young people in that church. So uh, just one example of what that looked like in practice and often what it costs both generations. But yet, that sense of coming together in unity and not driving a wedge, but rather um, embracing, uh, is obviously, as you're suggesting, makes a big difference. There's another dynamic to this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is, with so much emphasis in our culture on young people and youth, and let's be honest about it, as you get older, don't you look back? Come on now. I mean, I'm... Jack Benny's age plus a number of years, and yet there's the sense that, gee, if I could only go back to my 30s, if I could go back to my, well, I won't go any further. We want to recapture that. We have a sense that there's something about vigor and vitality and energy and enthusiasm that that is inherent to to being younger. And yet, with so much emphasis on such things, it seems as if they're at least in areas where the church, rather than embracing that, and giving credence to that and acknowledging that instead somehow demonizes it. We'll talk about that next. Our conversation today with the co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, our guest, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation, our visit today with Jake Mulder, co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. One of the things that comes to mind, and I referenced this, Jake, just before the break, um, there's so much about our culture that we have a longing to want to go back and be younger if we're older. There's a lot of celebrating of uh, what it means to be young, and yet there seems to be a sense, and again, this is not in all churches, but in some churches, that we, we kind of isolate young people and we, we suggest that, well, they're not ready, they're not mature, and therefore they're not as valued in some ways, and perhaps at least that's the message that young people are receiving as the older adults. What of that notion, and, and is the church missing the boat here. Um, I mean, certainly maturity in Christ is an important thing, but are we missing the boat in some ways? Yeah, yeah, Craig, I really think we are. And two more of the core commitments that we discovered during our research uh, that characterize churches that are able to grow young really speak to that well. One of them, which I can unpack in just a second, uh, is that these churches seem to empathize with today's young people. Uh, And the other one is that these churches fuel a warm sense of community. Uh, So let me go ahead and speak to the idea of empathy first. Uh, What we discovered in these churches is that so often it's easy for a church or, or really any community to have misunderstanding, especially between generations. And in the church today, what that might look like is um, people pointing fingers at millennials and saying, well, millennials today, we all know they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't really want to go to church, they don't really want to follow Christ. And that's not 
the, that's not the default position that we saw in the churches in our study. Um, if anything, we found that, that the adults in these churches look to these young people and see that they're going through a significant journey, that they're asking questions, just like all of us are, about identity, questions about who, who they are, questions about belonging, where they fit, and questions about purpose, what difference it is that they make. And like I said, all generations today are asking those questions, but for young people today, given how fast the world is changing, given different developmental realities, uh, these questions are really on the forefront of their mind. Well, not only that, but I think there's a way in which we're maybe kind of missing the point here, because oftentimes, if you talk to older adults, they'll say that, well, you know, compared to younger generations, and you can go back to the great generation that fought World War II, and and so on, they say, well, you know, we had a sense of meaning and purpose and drive. These young people today don't care about anything, and yet, if you sit down and talk with them, they're passionate about protecting the planet, dealing with global warming, saving the whales, all of these sort of, uh, for want of a better term, do-good kind of exercises that all go back to the central point of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to leave the place, the planet, better than it was when they found it or inherited it. And I I just have to wonder, if if we couch the impact of the gospel... In terms of the ability for young people to be able to leave a mark and look at the the absolute indelible mark left by Jesus himself, I think young people could look at this and say, wow, I want to be a world changer, and you've just handed me the keys. Yeah, that's exactly what we found in our research. But the difference that you're talking about, it, it means that in our churches, we have to move past assuming we know where people are at, and not just older people towards younger people. We're also advocating for we need to move past the assumptions that young people have for older people, uh, which that's empathy. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. But to move back to something that you said uh, earlier in our conversation, when we have a church that's so separated and segmented by generations and different generations never interact, well, it's hard to practice empathy. It's hard to move to that deeper relational understanding. But, yeah, I think how you phrased it, it, that lines up very much with what we found in our research. And, you know, largely it's so sad because um, there's much that both generations can learn from each other. Older people can learn a lot from younger people, and there's an awful lot, certainly from an experiential standpoint, to be sure, that younger people can learn from older people if we just set aside some of these misconceptions and be able to actually dialogue with each other. Yeah. Is it okay if I tell you a short story about uh, Bill Wallace, one of the heroes in our study? So uh, we had visited a congregation that was thriving with younger generations, and we were in a room of 20-year-olds, and we asked them, what is it that you love so much about your church? And one of them mentioned something about the worship service, and a few heads nodded. Another one mentioned something about the mission trips, and a few heads nodded. But then one girl sitting over in the corner said, you know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of energy in the room. There was excitement. Every head was nodding. And uh, 20-somethings were saying, you know, I love Bill Wallace, too. He's so much of what makes our church our church. They told us how Bill... Uh, stops them in the hallway, asks them what's happening in their life. He knows their name. He uh, attends sporting events. He attends the dance recitals, other activities of the middle school students and high school students in the church. So uh, we just assumed and we pictured, well, Bill Wallace, he must be the 22-year-old youth pastor in that church who's just got plenty of time on his hands and goes and hangs out at kids' events. And they actually corrected us and said, no, 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 Bill, Bill's not 22 years old. Bill is actually 76 years old. 
Uh, and Bill has made an intentional decision in his retirement years that he is going to invest in the young people in that church. He knows their name. He cares for them. He shows up, and they love Bill Wallace and they love their church because of the way he invests in them. So one of the stories that we've been telling of, of just something that we, we love about our research, how different generations are being connected, and it's like you said, we think that young people need the church, and the church needs young people, and when the two are together, that's a beautiful thing. And you know, at the end of the day, that story of Bill that you share so wonderfully illustrates that this is not complicated, this is not expensive. It's not complex. Because I know people listening to our conversation today, especially as we began, said, well, I know what you guys are going to talk about. And we, we, we can't afford that kind of money. We can't build that kind of program. We can't hire that kind of talent. But wait a minute, though. Yeah, there might be times and places for programs and approaches. Although if you listen to this program with any frequency, you know that largely I don't buy into that. Most importantly, it's the notion that taking the time to care, the ability to do what would appear to be the inconsequential little things in life that has such a tremendous impact, how many of us that have the ability to be another Bill Wallace as Jake just described, if we'd only take the time and make the effort. The book is compelling. There's much more to learn. And so if you've been captivated by our conversation today and you'd like to go deeper and learn more, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. It can not only be revitalizing to the young people in your church, but revitalizing to your church overall. The new book, by the way, newly published by Baker Books and available in bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get more information on the web by going to churchesgrowingyoung.org. That's churchesgrowingyoung.org. And our thanks to co-author Jake Mulder for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.